it has been said that over time, the church will become in macrocosm what the pastor is in microcosm. In other words, the church will take on the personality of its pastor. Um, good news for you, that doesn't mean that you'll take on a dry sense of humor. Um, it means that the church will take on the spiritual character of the pastor, which may be bad news, actually. The fact is that the church should be concerned about uh, the spiritual maturity of its pastor. And the church often reflects its pastor because it is concerned about and emphasizes the, thing that the, past, the things that the pastor is concerned about and things that he emphasizes. I don't tell you that to boast. If anything, the thought of that sobers me. I tell you that because our job as a church is to become like Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is critically necessary that we have a pastor who is like Jesus Christ and who is growing more and more into the image of Christ all the time. And so we need, and every church needs, a pastor who is committed to godliness for the sake of our church's spiritual well-being and for the reputation of the church in the world. And so here in 1 Timothy 3, we have two sets of qualifications. One set has to do with the qualifications for the one who will have oversight of the church, the overseer, pastor. And the second has to do with qualifications for those who will be characterized by the service in the church, and that is the deacons. So tonight we're going to focus on the first set of qualifications in verses 1 through 7. So follow along in your Bibles as I read. This is the Word of God. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. And overseer, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here in the first part of chapter 3, Paul wants us to see that the pastor has a high, a high calling with a high standard. A high calling with a high standard. The first thing that we see in verse 1 is that pastoral work is a good calling. Pastoral work is a good calling. Now before we get into this idea of it being a calling and it being a good calling, let me just talk to you for a minute about the difference between the, the titles pastor, overseer, and elders, and elder. Um, in Acts 20, there is no difference. Listen to Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So there's one term. Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you. He's talking to the elders and he's saying it's, he's, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's a second one. So that you would shepherd or pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So the reason I state that is because there are some people who think that these are three different offices. But according to Acts 20, it's actually all one office that is just um, 
described in three different ways. It's three different ways to describe the same office. And Paul, in our passage in 1 Timothy, only uses the word overseer, but in Titus 1 he uses both overseer and elder to describe the same person. So whenever you hear those terms, it's all referred to the same office. They're, they each show a different nuance of responsibility. For example, elder has the idea of maturity and wisdom. Oversight has the idea of management. And then pastor has the idea of leadership and care. And the, and the pastor of the church, the elder, the overseer, has responsibility for all those things. second thing we need to see under this first point is that pastoral work is good. Paul calls it, notice in verse 1, it is a fine work. So it is work. The work of the pastor is work. It requires a great deal of exertion and effort. It's not the highest paying job. It's not the easiest job. But it is good work. And I think of it as labor, but I'm, I, I more specifically think of it like Paul calls it in 1 Thessalonians 1.3, a labor of love. You know, it's the kind of work that you love to do, but it's still work. And pastoral work starts with a good desire. And that's what Paul says that he commends. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. He uses this uh, introductory phrase. It's a trustworthy statement. So something that's, that the churches would have known, probably a saying that they would, they would um, bounce around with each other. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So it starts with a good desire and, and, it, it, and Paul's saying it's commendable. If someone actually has that desire to go after the office of the pastor, that's a good desire. But I would suggest to you that thirdly, the pastoral work is, is a calling. There's more to the work of pastoral ministry than just a desire. And that's why I, I refer to it as a calling. I, I get that from Titus 1, 5 and other places where Paul says that, that the church has the responsibility to appoint or to call elders. See, I'm not a self-appointed pastor. There can't be just another person, man or woman, who just says, you know what, I have the desire to be a pastor, so I'm going to be a pastor. Uh, Biblically speaking, you cannot appoint yourself to be a pastor. It's a calling. It's something that the church has to call you to do. That is, that the church is actually speaking on behalf of God. They're, They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and they're the ones who are actually calling the pastor to be their um, their overseer. So if a guy has a desire to be a pastor, that's not enough. A church has to, to actually give the calling. So first, pastoral work is a good calling. Second, pastoral work is a spiritual calling in verses 2 through 7. It's a spiritual calling. The list that we have here is not exhaustive. Um, the reason I say that is because in Titus 1, Titus adds the idea of being able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So, we could take those extra qualifications there in Titus 1 and say, well, that all fits under able to teach. But, but I guess what I'm saying is that this list has to be what is required of every pastor. A pastor um, should not be less than what this list requires, but he certainly must be more. And um, so what, what is the main requirement? We, we looked through Titus chapter 1 and the list of qualifications there. And the summary qualification in both lists is that the pastor, the overseer, is one who is above reproach. Notice this command or this expectation. 
an overseer then must be above reproach. So this then is like a therefore there. We could put it at the beginning of the sentence. Therefore, an overseer must be. So because, verse 1, the office of an overseer is fine work, therefore we need to consider what the office requires. And the fundamental qualification for the pastor is that he must be, he must be, not he must, not, this is not a, a um, optional thing. You know, if, if, it, if he is, it would be great. You know, you kind of have these job postings where it, they, um, they have some of these things that they list, you know, um, expert in Microsoft Excel is preferred. Well, that, that none of these things are preferred here. These are required. The overseer must be above reproach. That is, uh, this, this phrase, above reproach, in English comes from one Greek word which means blameless. That is, that he has an unblemished reputation. It doesn't mean that he's perfect. Otherwise, no church would ever have a pastor. It means that he's, he's uh, upright. He's above reproach. He, there is not a charge that could be laid against him that would stick because he, he has such high character. It's important that a pastor have such high character um, because he, in many ways, speaks. He is an example to the church and he speaks to the world in some sense. He says to the community what uh, godliness is. At least in their minds, that's what they see as, as godliness. You see, there will be plenty of unfounded and illegitimate blame that will come towards me as the pastor but but I should not give any reason for legitimate blame, right? Anyone can suffer for doing evil, but but the pastor needs to be one who is only suffering for doing what is right. So this is a high calling. I mean, this again, this is sobering just to consider for myself. So all of these other qualifications below that we're going to see with regard to how he he is with his wife, how he is with his children, how he is with the community, how he is with. Uh, spiritual maturity, how he is with finances, how he is with his personal character. All these things have to do with his requirement to be above reproach. So the first one, so keep in mind that summary qualification. He must be above reproach. He must be blameless. And the first one in verse 2 is that he must be above reproach with women. And I say with women because he has a... a um, he has an ex- exclusivity in his relationship with his wife, but that means that he can't be a womanizer, right? The idea of this phrase here is that he is the husband of one wife. There are three main views as to what this means. So let me just lay these out for you. Uh, first view of what this could mean, the husband of one wife. It could mean that he can only have one wife at a time so that he's not a polygamist. In other words, no polygamist could be uh, biblically suited to be a pastor. And I think at the very least, it has to mean that, a husband of one wife. Secondly, other, other scholars believe that it means that he could never have been divorced. In other words, that he could only ever have had one wife. And I don't think that fits the context. I mean, think about the rest of the qualifications, right? Are the rest of the qualifications requirements about what could ever have happened, that is, requirements of what he was like in the past all the way until now, or are they only for the present? For example, the requirement that he should not be a lover of money. Could a pastor who once loved money in the past ever 
be qualified to be a pastor today? Or what about the one in in verse 6 that he could never be a novice? Right? He can't be a new convert. Was that talking about you could never have been a new convert? Or only that now when you are in the position to take on uh, the pastorate, then you cannot be a new convert. See, that's the point. All of these qualifications are for what he is like now. So I would suggest to you that the same thing is true about the husband of one wife. And there's, there's lots of churches that believe differently about this. Um, but I would suggest that a, a, a former, formerly divorced man is not necessarily disqualified from being a pastor. Uh, because what is he like now? Is he the husband of one wife? I think the point is that he should never be a womanizer. Not that he never was a womanizer, but that he's not one now. And that leads us to this third option of what the husband of one wife means. And I think that is the correct option. It is that he must be a faithful husband. If he's married, that he is a faithful husband. If he's not married, he's a faithful man. He's not immoral. The main reason I think that is because the phrase husband of one wife is literally translated from the Greek of one woman man. So that's where you hear that phrase in relation to these kinds of texts. He must be a one woman man. He must be a one woman kind of man. So I think the main idea is that the pastor must be a faithful husband. He is to be solely committed to his wife. Now, I recognize that the past does shed some light on the present, right? If we have someone who is a multiple divorcee, like... Let's say he's just been divorced six or seven times and now he wants to be a pastor and now he's going to get up and, and tell people what the best way to, to, um, to, to live is in their marriage. I mean, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of weight that he can carry even though he may be speaking truth from the Scripture. People are going to be like, well, what are you telling I had a I had a professor in college who was trying to give advice to us as a public university. Um, trying to give us advice to us on on marriage, and he had been divorced three times. I'm thinking, you're giving advice on marriage, and I'm supposed to listen to you. He was working on his fourth marriage. Um, so so there 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 I, I recognize that. So I'm not trying to say you know let's just ignore all the past and let's just see what they're like in the present. We don't even have to go back. I'm not suggesting that. But I think what the text is saying is what is he like now? Because there would not be a person right, who has been perfect in all these ways, above reproach in all these ways that Paul is listing. Does that make sense? I mean, he, there, there's no person that could ever fit these qualifications from the time of birth until they, they pursued the pastorate. right? So there must be a change that takes place. We understand that. Paul was a murderer. right? He was a godless man. As, as, as religious as he was, he was godless. And, uh, and yet he changed, and he was certainly qualified to be a pastor, qualified to be an apostle even. So, so the husband of one wife I take to mean that he must be a faithful husband. In all these, Paul's not requiring a man to be married. In other words, if a single man wants to pursue the, the office of pastorate, he certainly is welcome to do so. Paul uh, is certainly a good example of that. So he's not, Paul's not requiring a man to be married, but wants to give guidance if a man is married. No matter who he is, he must be a faithful man. If he's, a, if he's married, then he must be a faithful husband. 
And if he has children, he must be a faithful father. We'll get to that here in just a second. So, summary requirement, he must be above reproach. He must be blameless. First, with women. Second, with character. And that covers, I think, these next three. Temperate, prudent, and respectable. This first one, temperate, the word means wineless, without wine. And so, it could just mean that you know, he's, he's not addicted to wine, but it seems like Paul covers that here later. So it's probably not that. It's probably the idea of sobriety and, and more than just the area of wine. That, that in all of life, he is just a sober person. He's not taken to excesses. He's not giving up the inhibitions, uh, that his, um, his, his thoughts and his, his uh, cognizance to the inhibitions, to, to, the, to the failing inhibitions of, of what alcohol can do. Secondly, prudent. Prudent, this has to do with his character as well. He is well-disciplined. He must be well-balanced, serious about spiritual things. Third, respectable. Literally, the, the word is translated orderly. He must be an orderly person in all of life. Uh, this is important for the church because the church should be a place of order. It should not be a place of chaos. So, he must be above reproach. He must be above reproach with women. He must be above reproach in his character. Third, he must be above reproach with ministry. And that covers the next three. Hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine. Hospitable is literally translated to love strangers. And in the first century, Christian travelers would, would, um, be needed, uh, would need a place to stay. And um, there's no um, Holiday Inn or... or um, any kind of hotel of hotel that they could get, so they needed some place to stay. They need someone to take care of their needs, um, and and so a pastor should should excel in this kind of desire to go out of his way to do something to care for someone else. Um, secondly, able to teach. This has to do with his ministry as well. All the other qualifications seem to have to do with his character of how he is as a person, how he treats other people. This one actually has to do with his ability. Now, this, this qualification here, able to teach, is not required of all believers. In fact, it's not even required of deacons. But it is necessary for every single person who pursues or is in the position of pastor, who is in the office of pastor, overseer, elder. He must have the ability to be able to communicate truth on behalf of God. And then the third one under this one with his, that he's above reproach with ministry is that he's not addicted to wine. That, that it's more than that he's a non-drunkard. That, that would certainly disqualify him. But, but he must not give up the control of his inhibitions to, to alcohol. He must not be, ha, have this pull towards wine, you know, like Proverbs talks about, that he's constantly looking at the bottle and, and wondering when he can get his next drink. So, above reproach with women, above reproach with character, above reproach with ministry, and then the next three, above reproach with his treatment of others. Above reproach with his treatment of others. Not pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. So these first two kind of go together. Not pugnacious, and then the converse of that is that he is gentle. This word pugnacious is literally not a giver of blows. Okay, So, not ready to, to come to fisticuffs over... An issue, and this is important. If the church is going to follow them, and if the community is going to respect, in some sense, 
the, the work that's being done, that they're not going to minimize or turn away from the gospel. I mean, just imagine this news headline, you know, pastor of Royal Oak Church punches church trustee over budget discrepancy. Right? I mean, what is the community going to think if the pastor is by reputation a brawler? Right? Instead, he should be the second one, and that is that he should be gentle in the middle of verse 3. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary, calls this sweet reasonableness. That he's a reasonable person and he does it with love. Right? This is the kind of idea that we see in, in um, Ephesians chapter 4 that should be true of all believers. And there it is talking about our requirement as believers to do this. But we need to speak the truth in love. That he recognizes the situations that are going on and with reasonableness he's handling them with sweetness, with love. Then the third one under this, this treatment of others, is that he is a peaceable person. He must not be a guy who's looking to, to pick a fight or who is easily excitable, however, uh, but, but rather he should be seeking to, to bring peace where there's conflict. Right? When a, when a conflict arises in the church, he should be one to, to be pursuing peace. Now, when it says peaceable, we might think, well, I guess when the false teacher comes in and attacks the doctrines of the faith, then, we, then he, he has to be peaceable. He just has to lay down. And I think Paul, in other places, would, would say that we don't give up peace, or I should say, we don't give up truth for the sake of peace. Right? We don't just pursue peace at all costs. Right? That's what our society is trying to do. It doesn't work. Um, there has to be truth at the center the best peace is only going to come when there is truth. That means that he needs to contend for the faith. That's what Jude calls it in Jude chapter 1. Right? That, that I, wish I, I wish I could just talk to you about the glories of the gospel, but instead I have to contend for the faith. I have to fight here. You know, this is real stuff. I'm not going to lay down with this. So it's not, I'm not going to be peaceable when truth is at stake. Does that make sense? So in general, he ought to be a person who... Is not looking to pick a fight. But when it comes to the doctrines of the faith, when it comes to truth, um, he must be willing to contend for it. Next, he needs to be above reproach with money. And here we see at the end of verse 3, free from the love of money. A greedy pastor has little integrity with his congregation and maybe even less with the outside world. So it's not about the money. I mean, just think of some of these TV preachers and, you know, easy kind of um, whipping post, but, but some of these TV preachers are all about the money. You know, they're constantly just seeing what they can do to improve their bottom line, and so they're, they're driving around these fancy cars and have their personal jets and, and, and all their messages tailored around what can get them the most money. And that actually harms the message of the gospel. If there was any semblance of the gospel in some of these um, greedy pastors and their, their message, then it would be lost because people would be so distracted by how greedy these men are. And so anybody in the position of the pastorate ought to be free from the love of money. Why? Paul's going to say later in chapter 6 that the love of money is the root of what? All kinds of evil. And that some, while while pursuing after that, fell into uh, a trap, into harmful and foolish lusts. In other words, they turned away from the faith. And, and money can do that. The love of money can do that. 
Next. Um, where are we at? Number seven, maybe. Uh, above reproach with home life, verses four and five. He must be above reproach with home life. Here in verse four, Paul gives the requirement. Verse five, he gives the reason. So here's what you have to have if you're a pastor. And here's the reason why. The requirement, verse 4, is that he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Paul uses two verses, verses 4 and 5, for this one qualification that he is a faithful father. And this tells us how important this qualification is, right? He's kind of been just rapid fire throwing out these qualifications. Not this, not this. He must be this. And then he takes and slows down and says he must manage his own household well. He has to have his children follow him with all dignity and, and, and the reason why he's going to, to explain. This requirement has to do with both character and ability. In verse 15, notice the church is called, in the, at the end of the verse, the household of God. It's called the household of God. So if the pastor has the responsibility to have oversight over the household of God, then how important is it that he has management and the ability to rule in his own household? In other words, the proving ground for pastoral leadership, the household of God, the proving ground for the household of God is his own household. And this qualification puts a heavy weight on the shoulders of Jennifer and our children because in some sense, they have a higher standard that they, than they have to meet than your family, right? I mean, if they um, do not follow well, then, then I could lose my job, and I should lose my job, by the way. And last time I checked, you're not going to be disqualified as a member if you don't manage your household well. So this is a, this is a high calling. Again, this doesn't require that a pastor does have children, as I mentioned with the husband of one wife. I think that the point that Paul's making is that if he does, they must be God-fearing children. And um, we talked about this when we looked at Titus 1. There it says he must have children that are faithful, uh, or as King James says, children that believe. So this is, a, this is an important responsibility that every pastor must live up to. And, and notice the reason in verse 5. But, or we could say for, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church or the household of God? Right? A father who is incapable of leading his own home well is going to be incapable of leading the church. So someone who is unfaithful, unable in small things is not going to be faithful, just magically faithful in big things. He's not going to be magically have the ability... In addition to that, if he's not ruling his own household well, what kind of an example does that serve for the church? Right? If, if the pastor's kind of just letting things slide, and, you know, there's obviously lots of um, stereotypes that have been made of pastor kids and their, their um, disobedience and their rebellion in general. Right? And if, if a pastor's willing to just allow that kind of thing, then what does that say to the rest of our cho the children in our church as to what is um, what, what godliness ought to look like. The two primary ways that the pastor exercises oversight in the home, and I would say also at church, is number one, through example. And 
uh, to their teaching. So the example of service that he's willing to, to live as an example, he's not living a two-faced kind of life where in public, in front of the church, he's living one way and then at home he's living a different way. Um, or that you know he's telling all the congregation they need to be good at serving other people and, and praying for other people and then at home he's not um, involved in any of those things. But also in teaching, that he's leading through example and he's leading through teaching. That's the primary way that that um, we influence those who follow us. That's the primary way that Jesus taught us to to lead is through example and through teaching. So he must be above reproach with his home life. And then next, number six, he must be above reproach with regard to spiritual maturity. Not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Again, a requirement and a reason. The requirement is very quickly stated, not a new convert. So no matter how much charisma a man has, you know, we have somebody come in here and, and he's looking to, to, to replace me at some point. You know, no matter how much charisma he has, no matter how much success he has in the business world, no matter how much money, no matter how buttoned up he looks, if he is a new Christian, he is not qualified to be a pastor. Why? Here's the reason in the second part of verse 6. So that he will not become conceited. And so that he will not fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. So I think the idea here is not that Satan's setting a trap. That's going to be verse 7. But here I think it is that Satan fell into a trap. Right When he was a holy angel at one point, uh, he, he fell into the trap of pride, didn't he? Where he exalted himself above God. And Paul's saying that this is more likely to happen with a new convert than an experienced, a mature convert. So don't allow ever a pastor to take uh, the role uh, within this church or any church that you're part of who is a new convert. It simply disqualifies him. He must, he must have been um, a believer for some time. Now, where, where we draw that line, you know, what does that mean? Is that a couple months? Is that a year? Is that several years? Um, it's hard, hard to be able to say that. Um, and that would require discernment on your part as you're thinking through that um, or whoever's a part of that. In the book of Acts, the pattern seems to be that Paul establishes churches and then he stays for a time and he establishes leaders. In some cases, he was there for only a few months. So how could he not have a new convert? I think probably what he was doing in many cases was bringing other people in to help um, transition while he moved on to another place. And then they would train up leaders and move on. It seems like when he stayed in places for longer, like Ephesus for three years, then that seemed to be when he would establish these leaders and then they would take over. So, And the other thing about Acts is it's difficult to use that as the final rule for all that we do because it was a transitional period, but, but that's probably a good place to start. So he must be he must be above reproach with regard to his spiritual age, we could say. And then finally, he must be above reproach with his public life, verse seven. His public life. Again, we have a requirement in the first part of the verse and then a reason for the requirement. The requirement is that he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. It's important 
what the church and its leaders look like to the outside world. A lot of these qualifications have to do with how the, church, how the society views us as a church. And the society often tags, whether you like it or not, tags our church with who we are as a people based on their view of my character as the pastor. In a sense, we are representatives of Christ and, and I, in many ways, represent you as the pastor of this church. And so... Um, we need to make sure that the pastor of the church, whenever he is our pastor, is that, that he is, has a good reputation with outsiders. The reason for this is found in the second part of the verse, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This time it's not talking about Satan falling from heaven and falling into this trap of pride. Instead, it's talking about the idea that the devil is actually setting a trap for the pastor. I mean, what would it mean for the church if they hired a man who had a bad reputation with the community? How much more evil could Satan do in our community if our church was led by a godless pastor, one who had a bad reputation with those outside of him? The fact is that he and the church would easily fall into the trap of the devil's setting. So we must make sure that this is a requirement. Three points of application tonight. Number one, our church must demand these qualifications for our pastor. Our church must demand these things. Your personal, spiritual well-being and our church's public reputation is in some sense dependent upon your pastor. And it's dependent on whether or not he has met up to and continually meets up to these requirements. And I know that that you must continually demand these of me for at least two reasons. Number one, God gives the requirements, right? If these were not necessary, then why would God require them? Remember what verse 2 said? The overseer must be, not must be at the time that he comes into office, but he must, I would say, continually be above reproach in all these things. So the first reason I know that you must require these of me and any pastor that you're under is that God gives the requirements. The second reason is, um, is by way of example. Think about a pastor who has only one or two of these qualifications. Let's say you have a pastor that come in here, comes in here and he just has a unique ability to teach. He, he's, he excels at being able to teach. And maybe the other thing is that he's good with outsiders. But all the other ones, all the other requirements, he's lax with. He's actually the opposite of what he's supposed to be. But he's able to teach. And people outside like him. Now consider your own heart. Don't you think that when he speaks hard truth, that you are going to be tempted to dismiss his teaching and justify your own sin. Because look, his life's a spiritual and moral wreck. Why should I listen to him? Right? I'll, I'll take the truth that I accept. I'll take the truth that you know I don't have a problem with. But, but when he says something hard, when he says something that goes against my spiritual grain, I'm not going to listen to him. What about people outside of the church? How will they view Christianity? 
And you might be thinking, well, that's nice. I mean, that's, that's good. We need to require these qualifications for our pastor, but we're not in the position of choosing a pastor. Right? So we'll keep that in mind the next time it rolls around, but that doesn't really help us now. And I would say to you that it's true that you're not calling a pastor, but you should be in a state of constantly evaluating me and my fitness to be the pastor. These requirements, I would argue, are not a once-and-done set of requirements. When I was being evaluated for the work of being your pastor in 2009, I indicated that I had no intention of leaving anytime soon. And one of the deacons said, well, I guess this is going to be a long relationship because we have no intention of getting rid of any pastors. We just don't do that at this church. And I know what he meant. He was well-intentioned. Um, I'm sure if, if he was speaking heresy, if a pastor were speaking heresy, they would remove him. But, but as, in general, we don't like to fire people. You know, we don't like to get rid of people. It's easier just to hire the right guy. And in, you know, we'll just endure if he starts to, to turn us in a direction we may not like, but you know, he's the pastor. And so I, I recognize the well-intentioned nature of the point. But I would suggest that there has to be a place where you, as the congregation, draw the line. Where at some point you look at these requirements and you look at me and you say, you're not fit anymore. You may have been fit at the time when we called you as the pastor, but you don't fit the requirements. You don't match up to what is required of a pastor, and this affects our spiritual well-being as hard as that would be for you. You need to approach me on that. You need to handle that in a godly way. right? Um, when you rebuke an elder, you need to do it carefully. There's some biblical uh, expectations for how you do that. But but you should not lay down and say, well, you know what? We already made our choice, so can't do anything about it. Many a church has fallen into a trap, fallen into a snare because they were not willing to stand up to the pastor. Like, well, we'll just let it go. And then eventually the, 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 the church turns south and eventually the people, the godly people have to leave. And I would suggest to you that if, if the church is constantly evaluating the pastor, not in a cynical way, but, but in, in a biblical way that, that they're wanting to keep themselves in line with what God requires, then those kinds of things wouldn't happen. Our, trust, our church must demand these qualifications for our pastor. I think, secondly, that our church must pray for our pastor. Being above reproach as a whole, and specifically with each of these areas, is humanly impossible. The only way that anyone could ever do this is with the help of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the pastor and the church must depend on God through prayer to develop and maintain these qualifications in the pastors. Let me give you five specific things to pray for. First, pray for my faithfulness at home. If I can't manage my household well, I cannot manage the church of God. I'm just not equipped. Second, pray for my growth in godliness and wisdom. The highest thing that God calls me to do is to know Him. So pray that I would grow in godliness and wisdom. Not that I would, become, that I would not become stagnant and just happy with the status quo, but that I would grow in godliness and wisdom. Number three, pray for my love for the gospel to increase. 
the gospel that saved me, something that I should love. I mean, the things that I am passionate about come across to you, don't they? And so, should I not be most passionate about what is most important in our church, the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so pray that my love for the gospel increases and that that comes across to you. Number four, pray that I would be faithful to the text when I study and preach. My two primary responsibilities, according to Acts chapter 6, are to preach and to pray. So pray that I am able to preach well, but I can't preach well unless I study well. I can't study well unless I know the text. So I just need some time to to look at the text, to study the text, to be faithful to the text. I don't want to you know, just force my ideas on the text. I want to understand what the text means, draw that out from there, and then pass it on to you. So that I can, in some sense, say, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. So see this in the text for yourself. Recognize it. Follow it. And here's some applications as to how, you, how to do that. Pray that I would be faithful to the text when I study and preach. And then number five, pray that I would govern, govern the church well pastor who, who rules well for Timothy 5 is worthy of double honor. So it's not enough just to kind of get by, you know, just make it to another next Sunday, but, but that I would rule well. That it would be pleasant for you to be a part of this church. That, that you would take joy in being led. That, that I would be best at feeding the sheep, not beating the sheep. Right, like a good shepherd, he's constantly caring for the sheep, and and I ought to have the heart of Jesus, who is our over shepherd, our 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 ultimate shepherd. I'm the under shepherd. Number three, I think by implication, uh, our church must train up more pastors. And the fact is, is that I'm not going to live forever, and there's no guarantee that I will be faithful forever. I mean. God forbid that that would be the case, but but we need to train up other pastors who are able to come alongside and help to lead this congregation and to replace me when I move on. And I don't have any imminent intentions in doing so. Um, but in Titus, the command is to appoint elders, which implies that we have the ability in our church to actually train leaders that will meet up to these character qualifications and the ability qualifications that that it's a man who learns how somehow to manage his household well and he learns how to teach those are the two main ability qualifications all the rest have to do with character and so so I think we need to to improve in this area and obviously I I need to improve in this area I I need to initiate uh, with regard to training leaders and I haven't um, done well in that regard so perhaps another way to to pray for me as well. All right, would you bow your head with me and let's pray. Father, it's amazing that you um, would choose in your wisdom to lead us, a sinful and imperfect people, through a leader who is far from perfect who is sinful and imperfect and um, Lord and yet you, you've chosen to do that and uh, yet we don't want to minimize and just say well you know since every, all pastors who fit these qualifications are 
technically sinful, then we can just allow anybody that that is a good teacher to, to come in this place. Lord, I pray that, that we would be confident, convinced in our minds of the reality of these qualifications and the necessity for them for holding whoever is the pastor of this church for hopefully decades to come, uh, even beyond me and, and others, that, that, that they would be held and I would be held to the strictest of qualifications because it has a real effect on their spiritual well-being and it has an effect on our reputation in the world. And, and we as a church reflect Christ and we certainly would not in any way want to take away from the beauty of Christ with a pastor who is unconcerned about holiness. And so we pray that you would help us to be convinced in our minds of the seriousness of this. I pray that you would give me a spiritual strength that I need to be able to meet up to these qualifications and to improve in each of these areas. And I pray that you would train me up in godliness and, and love for other people and, and love for your word. And I pray that with my uh, learning of those things and growing in those things, I would be able to help others do the same. Lord, we all have the same goal here. We all want to be made like Jesus Christ. We all want to glorify you with our bodies. And so help us as we do that together. May we each take our part in this process, in this work. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.